Audi. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and welcome to episode 105 of the Big Travel Podcast. Just a quick reminder, if you're liking what you do, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. We do love those if we can get them. We're brought to you, of course, by WeCure, the leading health tourism provider in the UK. If you're seeking dental treatments, aesthetic procedures and social and mental well-being, WeCure will connect you with internationally accredited medical institutions in Turkey. And in an exclusive offer with the Big Travel Podcast, they will even pay for someone to go with you, turning your treatment into a relaxing holiday with a friend or special someone, whoever you want to take. Visit wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast today to claim this exclusive offer. And now on to today's episode. The year is 2505. The oceans have risen. A new era of piracy has dawned. Australia has been very much influential in author Justin Somper's vision of the future world in his best-selling Vampirates book. And his passion for Down Under has led to much exploring and even his recent wedding on the beach in the rain. As well as Australia, we talk New York Studio 54 and Broadway, Washington DC and a homophobic hostel owner. The surrealness of Bangkok, hanging out with Isla Fisher in London and much, much more. Justin Sumper is on the Big Travel Podcast. Justin, hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, you're in Crouch End in London, but I understand you almost got stuck in Australia recently because of the whole shutdown situation. What happened? That's absolutely true. So um, my other half and I were out in Australia for the whole of March, which is something we do not infrequently. My husband is Australian, and so we have family and friends out there. And indeed, on this trip, we upgraded, if that's the right term, from civil partnership to marriage on a on a beach. And yeah, that that happened the middle Saturday in March. And then there was a lot of uncertainty whether we would be flying home at the end of the month or not. But you did manage to, to fly back. Was there ever a, a moment when you thought, I'm going to be stuck in Australia here? It's not the worst place to be stuck in the world. I thought, I thought both those things. I mean, I think for us, um, after the wedding, things started changing very, very quickly. So we were due to fly to see family in Tasmania and then to go and see friends in Melbourne. And we just had this thought, hang on a minute, things are changing really quickly. What if we can't get back to Perth, where our return flight was from? So we didn't go to Tasmania or Melbourne, and that proved probably the right call because we might still have been quarantined in Tasmania to this day. Again, not a disaster, but... uh, uh, And then very much the last 10 days of the trip were, will we be able to get home should we get home? Should we stay here? Because we we, you know, we had family and friends there. But equally, we have our dog here. We have our life here. We have we have work in London, although to a degree we can both work remotely. So um, to be honest with you, it was kind of uncertain until we were actually sitting on that Qantas flight, whether we were coming or going. The, the wedding on the beach sounds like a beautiful place to start. Tell me about your recent marriage. Well, as I say, you know, we we were civil partnered some years ago in 2011 in London, and that was sort of very splashy, you know, 100 people at Shoreditch House. And we were lucky that a number of the Australian family and friends came over for it. But we'd done that. Um, But that, of course, was before um, gay marriage was legal. So 
we wanted to grab every extra right that we can while we can as the world is changing so fast. And we thought, well, rather than repeating um, or trying to emulate that big splashy do, let's do something very different. So PJ said to me, uh, you know, what do you feel about barefoot on a beach in Australia? Just a handful of friends and family. And, and that sounded lovely on a number of levels. So we went to the Margaret River, which um, is out west. And it's a beautiful region, uh, primarily known for its amazing wineries, but also surfing beaches. And we found a celebrant there online. And she suggested a particular beach, Redgate Beach, that we had been to before. So that all sounded perfect. And uh, I guess I've been really psyching myself up for this gorgeous, sunny beach wedding, barefoot, the ocean crashing behind us. I got kind of 75% of that, but on the day of the wedding, it was absolutely torrential rain. Completely torrential, completely soaked. We had to borrow umbrellas from the guest house to get to the beach. The ceremony had to be conducted with a series of umbrellas that were passed from one person to the next. Then when we were signing the marriage certificate, we were kind of leaning against a rock with, uh, with umbrellas over us. There were some fishermen nearby and a dog from that belonged to one of the fishermen came and sort of wandered in. So it had, it, it was actually, it was fantastic. It, it had a real, it had even more informality to it um, th th than I could have imagined and a, a sort of Mamma Mia quality as well, if you like. That sounds amazing. It sounds like it, on the morning of the wedding, I can just imagine you waking up and going, oh no, but actually you managed to, turn it around and uh were you still bare feet or did you have wellies on <laughs> <laughs> we were still bare feet right till the end um sipping um australian sparkling wine on the beach getting wetter and wetter and there are photos i mean literally you know the clothes are glued to me but i am barefoot uh, and quite muddy in the latter stages I love it. And Australian wine as well. One of my most beautiful moments of travel was going ballooning above the outskirts of Melbourne um, at sunrise and then going for a wine tasting afterwards. But it was just the Australian wine's fantastic. Actually, do you know what I remember about that? I won't go too much into this, but I literally just found out I was pregnant at two o'clock in the morning and had to get up and go uh, and go and on this balloon thing. And uh, so I couldn't do, do any of the wine tasting. I was absolutely gutted. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But before then, I was chugging the wine, you know, <laughs> before that moment, I was chugging the wine. magical experience. But I guess also, I mean, I love Australian wine, and I've been lucky to go to a number of the wine regions. But I think it's as much the, uh, the atmosphere at the wineries, the landscape is so beautiful. So even if... Even if you're not able to partake, you can still get quite a lot out of the experience. And your love of Australia, I hear, comes from a fascination with Home and Away, which I'm not surprised about, actually, because I know growing up here in the UK and uh, also in, in Spain where I grew up, growing up you know, with a, a British background, everyone was obsessed with Neighbours and Home and Away. Most people were on the Neighbours side, but I was definitely more of the Home, home and Away vibe. Tell me, tell me about this fascination with Home and Away that is led to your Australian fascination and indeed an Australian husband that's lucky <laughs> it's well there's a there's a seed of truth in, in this when I was at university um, in the late 80s and early 90s I mean Neighbours was 
an appointment to view. And it definitely was um, in my shared student flat, though I have to say not by me. I wasn't particularly into it. In my early um, days in publishing, and as well as writing books, I'm a publicist and uh, branding consultant. And in my early days, I looked after Isla Fisher when she was in London, and she'd written a couple of books for teenagers, and um, I was sort of escorting her around doing interviews. So, I mean, that was quite exciting because she was really a megastar in the UK, more famous here, I think, even in Australia. And you know, we'd go to quite nice restaurants with her and she'd report back that people were slipping pieces of paper um, into the toilet for her to sign, which which was a strange indication of her fame. But she was lovely and um, uh, incredibly forthright, which I suppose was one of my first introductions to the Australian personality, which is which is something that greatly appeals to me. But um, it wasn't really um, a, a love of soaps. I mean, in some ways... It was more books that led me to Australia. And there's a particular book that has kind of marked my journey there, which is Cloud Street by Tim Winton. I haven't read it, actually. Uh, I don't know it. Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely one of my favourite books. And I just stumbled on it actually around that time, around the early 90s. It was, it was in a bookshop in St Albans where I was living at that time. It's this beautiful story set in Perth, which I hadn't really heard of and didn't know anything about in the 1950s and it's about two families who are who are down on their luck and they end up having to share this house this home in Perth and it goes through a number of years and it's just beautifully written very powerful and it really stayed with me and through my work in publishing I was able to get in touch with the author Tim Winton and so I sent him a fan letter uh, which isn't something that I move to do very often um And I got a lovely postcard back from him, which I've kept as a bookmark in that book for for all those years. And actually, I I guess I got to meet him maybe two or three years ago, firstly in the UK, because he was doing a signing in Waterstones in London. And then where I was staying in Perth, in Mount Lawley, the suburb we typically stay in, um, he just happened to be doing a signing around the corner in an independent bookshop there. So I met him twice in, in a year having loved his book for about 25 years. That's in, I love the, the fact that you're an author and you're, you're selling someone else's book, but that sounds like an incredible book. And I love the way that the books like music, I always ask a music question at the end of the podcast, but books also have the power to transport us to places like that. I did a similar thing with William Sutcliffe, who um, wrote a book called, <laughs> Are you, you know William Sutcliffe, he wrote a book called Are You Experienced about traveling. And I mentioned I it. Oh, it's a great book. And I mentioned it so many times on this podcast. I was thinking, well, hang on a sec, why don't I get William Sutcliffe on? And, uh, and we had him on and he was brilliant. And that book is just a bit like uh, Alex Garland's The Beach, you know, a bit of a seminal yeah. work in terms of the, the travel experience. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, I was going somewhere with that. Hang on a sec. Oh, the book that reminds me that really speaks Australia to me is Bill Bryson's book, Down Under, which just the, f- the first chapter, it just has everything in Australia that can kill you, which is hilarious. But of course, when you go to you know Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane you don't you don't see all these creatures that can kill you luckily you know you think that Australia sounds like a very dangerous place in fact very quickly before I ask you about your hidden gems in Australia um, I emailed Bill Bryson last week and got a direct email back from Bill that said 
Thank you so much for asking me to come on your podcast, but I'm retired now and I'm not writing or doing any interviews. So whether that was true or not, it just turned me down, but I got a personal email from Bill. But anyway, um, before we move on from Australia, I know you've got a couple of travel recommendations for Australia, um, something that maybe we, we wouldn't have, uh, have you know, automatically thought of. I'm a big fan of the West. You know, the East Coast is what people tend to think of and where people tend to go initially. But I'm a big fan of the West. You know, when we stay in Perth, we are, well, we're 20 minutes drive from the beach pretty much. But as an Uber driver said to me this time, you're pretty much 20 minutes from anywhere you want to be. And that's an amazing thing in a major city. But that's because Perth has got, um, you know, 2 million inhabitants. And in fact, the whole of Western Australia only has 2.6 million. So you get that incredible sense of space there. And you get that, I think, the minute you're driving away um, from the airport and you just have that amazing big sky. So uh, I'm definitely going to recommend Perth as, as a city that people should consider. And if you're going to Perth, you've got to go to Kings Park Botanic Gardens. They're the most beautiful botanic gardens and they're perched high above the city and the river. Um, and I'm not somebody that likes heights, um, and that can create some complications when I'm traveling. But there's something about this amazing botanic gardens perched high above the city um, that it's so calming. Um, and even on a really hot day, and there are some, you know, 40 degree days to contend with there, um, they've got it arranged so that you can walk through different areas which have got different plants native to various Australian regions. And that's just uh, a beautiful way to, to lose a morning. So that would definitely be a top tip. And what's, uh, what's the most Australian thing that's ever happened to you when you've been in Australia? We love anecdotes, stories on the podcast. <laughs> the most Australian thing? Ooh, now that's, uh, that's a good question. I mean, on my first trip, I, um, I did one of those bus tours, up, hop on, hop off up the East Coast. And that involved um, a cattle ranch and also a sheep ranch. And I was just looking during lockdown. I've been doing a lot of sorting out. So I've come across a lot of old photo albums. And it appears that I did shear a sheep in Australia all those years ago. So I think that's pretty pretty thoroughly Australian, don't you? I think that I love the fact that it appears that you did shear a sheep because you've actually, <laughs> you've blocked it out of your living memory. You only remember it through the photographs. Now, my other half, actually, in his youth, probably around the same time that, that I was doing that traveling, he was actually working on a sheep station professionally. And that has proved more useful during lockdown because he's been able to cut my hair really quite well. <laughs> the skills you learn, the skills you learn. If he was out there picking fruit as well, he might be used by the uh, by the British farmers right now who apparently need... <laughs> Need, need some of those skills too. Uh, so moving on from Australia, you've travelled quite extensively for work. I know you've spent quite a bit of time in New York. Yeah, I've had quite a few work trips um, to New York, um, seeing my publishers there, and um, but you know also social trips. New, I, I love New York. Um, in some ways, it's the antithesis of Australia. I think you know I come back from Australia feeling very calm and centred and grounded. Um, and New York, I'm kind of super adrenalized um, from the moment I get off the plane to the moment I leave. So, you know, typically I'm racing around, I'm, I'm queuing to get tickets on Broadway. And I've done really well on that front. So 
I was able to get tickets um, to the first production of Rent, which was just amazing. And I, I saw that with a very good friend of mine. Also, tickets to Cabaret when they were doing that production, the Sam Mendes production with Alan Cumming at Studio 54. So that was that was quite a double whammy. Wow, that sounds incredible. It was performed at Studio 54. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of my fantasies, if I could time travel, would be back to Studio 54, back in the glory days on roller skates, I think. So, uh, yeah, that was quite something. And to be in the front row, which we were. So, um, yeah, wonderful experience. That is very cool. But what about you falling asleep at the theatre? I've been prompted to ask you about that. It wasn't in that performance, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't fall asleep in, in, in Cabaret, which was a good thing because... Uh, because we were practically on stage, me and my friend Rory. No, it's true. When I went to New York for the first time with, with PJ, my other half, there was so much I wanted to show him because I'd been there several times by that point. So I had lists of stuff that we were doing every day. So we were doing boat tours around the harbour. We had tickets to a hockey game one night. There were two Broadway shows. And then in between loads of walking, because I think... I think New York's a brilliant city for walking, actually. And you really, you know, you'd, I don't want to be on the subway the whole time because then you're missing stuff. So having toured around New York doing this, that and the other, we ended up at this amazing production of All My Sons starring Katie Holmes and Diane Weist and, you know, major, major cast. I think in our, in our defence, it was quite warm in that theatre, but, but literally, I, I sort of fell asleep more, more than once. And it wasn't a reflection of the production. It was just because I had been too greedy for everything that New York had to offer me. But the jet lag is something that's quite, um, that's quite extreme as well, I think, when you go to New York. You fancy going to New York and going out on these all-night parties and things, and actually you're really struggling to, to stay awake, and then you're waking up at like 5 o'clock in the morning and going out for bagels, but there's only so much that, of, of that sort of partying you can do, isn't there, when you actually uh, – the, the jet lag is just unfortunate. I prefer going the other direction. Like if you go to somewhere like Bangkok or the Far East, you know, you can stay out partying all night with loads of energy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And actually, you know, when you're dealing with a bigger jet lag proposition like a Bangkok or like Australia, it almost seems to hit you less, I think, because I think the body is just so confused that you can kind of tell it this is the time and it will sort of play along for a bit at least. So where has been the most, uh, where have you felt most out of place? You know, talking about places like Southeast Asia, I remember the very first time I went to Bangkok, you know, and you find yourself walking down the road in a busy market with hookers everywhere and elephants in front of you and just the crazy sights and sounds and smells. Where has been the most time you felt, you know, out of place and a foreigner like that? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, I went to Bangkok for the first time a couple of years ago, Bangkok for Christmas and Krabi for New Year, because, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm 50 now and I've only I think I've only been away for Christmas twice because my mum's birthday was on Christmas Day. So we just never did that. Um, but after she died, I, um, I didn't really want to be around that Christmas in, in London or in the UK. So we did the Bangkok thing. And that felt entirely different and, and surreal, hot, busy, and just culturally so different. But I guess I didn't feel out of place. I, I think actually, in a way, what I'm looking for from travel, and I find increasingly hard to get, is that sense that you're in a different culture. I think it it's hard now not to feel that you're going into something 
quite familiar and homogenized and seeing familiar shops or familiar places to eat. And although sometimes it's nice to be able to go to a hard rock and sort of know exactly what you're getting, equally, you know, the food that I had in Bangkok was just so off the scale brilliant. That really stays with you. Do you know, funny enough, my favorite restaurant in Bangkok, I don't know if it's still going, but I used to live in, I lived in Bangkok for quite a while, just for a few months working on a, a project um, before I was a travel journalist, actually, when I was in event production. And um, funny enough, it was run by a gay Australian couple and it was called, <laughs> it was called Eat Me. I don't know if it's, you've ever heard of it or it was still going I by then. Heard. It was it was definitely on the on the you must go to this restaurant and it was it's probably the one of the best restaurants I've been to in my life that just the attention for detail and what I really love about restaurants like that in the Far East is the twinkly lights you have everywhere you know there's always twinkly lights and really low lighting and just remember like if you ordered a hot chocolate at the end of the meal it would come with like sticks of chocolate that you swirled around and tried to melt and just a really really lovely experience and the guys used to come out and sit and talk to you and we used to get terribly drunk in that restaurant terribly drunk <laughs> has, uh, talking about um travel as a gay man has there been any times when you felt in jeopardy we've had a couple of gay bloggers travel bloggers on on the podcast and you know they they do have stories about going to countries that you know where they they're not exactly welcome and having to sort of you know bear that in mind as they're traveling yeah i mean i think in some ways i've been lucky with that and i guess in some ways i'm a little bit careful about where i go where we go and there are uh, I mean, sadly, given that we're in 2020, there are plenty of places sort of that I wouldn't go to. And and in some ways, they're kind of on the increase. But in terms of actually being uncomfortable somewhere, I mean, actually, that would go back years ago. So the first, no, the second time that I went to the States and I was traveling with a friend of mine from university and we stayed in Washington, D.C., and you know, I hadn't come out as gay at that point, and I wasn't in a relationship with with this friend of mine. We were just traveling as friends, but we were we had checked into this guest house that we had booked into from London. At some point in the evening, the uh, manager of the guest house came up and knocked on the door and came into the room. And I think you know, I was sitting reading in a t-shirt and shorts. I think my friend maybe didn't have a shirt on, but he was sort of sitting doing something else on the other side of the room and the manager said you've got to leave and we were really confused and saying well why what's happened and she said you know I know what you're doing and you have to go and um, so you know we found ourselves as two young guys you know kind of 18 19 on the streets of Washington DC at about 10 o'clock at night which you know for two nice middle class boys <laughs> was um, quite scary. And it was interesting to see that prejudice, um, you know, as I say, you know, founded on absolutely nothing. But even if it had been founded on something, it would have been completely unacceptable. Yeah, definitely. And there are there are places I know that people refuse to travel for all sorts of, um, you know, human rights abuses. There are definitely places that a lot of people will not go because of all sorts of human rights abuses and I think that's you know it's a, a very valuable point where traveling is you know where do we want to put our money where do we want to you know risk our, our ourselves you know and why do you think those places are rising that was quite interesting you think that it's um it, the uh, hate crimes are on the increase in many ways 
Well, you know, there, there's a lot of political change, isn't there, around the world? And, you know, I've been lucky with the Van Pirates books that they've been published in 35 countries around the world. But the downside of that is there are quite a few countries they've been published in that, you know, I wouldn't consider going to promote them in. Russia would be an example at the moment. I mean, there would have been a point when I was younger when I would have felt comfortable going to Russia, but I certainly don't now. My books have been really quite successful in Brazil. I think there are even question marks around that now. The Emirates is really well known for having uh, major literary festivals, but there's a lot of prejudice over there as well. It's kind of depressing, but my policy has been really to to stick to places that are going to be welcoming to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it seems a good time for you to tell me about the books, actually, because you've sold millions of copies around the world, which is very impressive. Even without visiting places. Uh, Yes, exactly. Tell us about the books. Well, it's a series of books called Vampirates. It's about vampire pirates. It's, It's for kids. Generally, they're kind of age 10, kind of year six when they first come into the series. But I would say there's no upper age limit, um, and there are plenty of adults that seem to enjoy them as well. Um, There are six main books in the series. They are set 500 years in the future, but it's a future where there's been global warming (laughs) and sea level rise. And so there's a lot less land and a lot more ocean, and there's this whole new dawn of piracy um, all over the world. So there are pirate ships here, there, and everywhere. And there's also this mysterious ship called the Nocturne, which has been traveling undetected since time began. Um, The heroes of my book are Australian teenagers, Connor and Grace Tempest, and they have grown up in a lighthouse with their lighthouse keeper father. Quite near the beginning of the first book, Demons of the Ocean, they are shipwrecked and the twins are thrown out of their boat, separated in the water almost drown, but they're both rescued, but they're rescued by very different people from different kinds of ships. Connor is rescued by a notorious pirate ship called the Diablo, and Grace is rescued, if that is the right term, by a ship that I've mentioned before, the Nocturne, which, um, as we and she will come to discover, is a ship of vampire pirates or vampires. And so the adventure begins. Oh, that sounds incredible. That really sounds incredible. I've got an almost eight-year-old, so maybe we'll start venturing into those soon. Perfect. I'm sending you a copy. Wonderful. That's even better. Um, so where have I, what have I missed in terms of travel stories, do you think? I mean, this, there are so many things I could talk about my love for Australia. I, I can come at it from so many different angles. But just as one evidence of what a magical place it is, there was a particular coincidence that happened the second time that I was out there. So I had visited friends um, in Melbourne over Christmas, and I did this separate trip on my own to see Uluru in the Red Centre. And that was as amazing as I had expected it would be. Um, And I was doing this sunset tour um, of the Olgas while I was there, and I heard voices behind me saying, is that Justin? That looks a bit like Justin, do you think? And I turned around and not only was it somebody that I knew, but it was actually my oldest friend, Suzanne from primary school and her husband, Steve. And what makes this story utterly ridiculous is because they live in the Peak District and I live in London, we've been finding it really difficult to catch up with each other for about a year. And so we hadn't actually been able to make an arrangement And neither one of us knew that the other was in Australia. And so we said, oh, should we have dinner here tonight? And we did. And we had a great catch up. 
That is incredible. That is really incredible. I love those travel coincidence stories where you bump into people from, but that is like a, a, a really, a, a, you know, quite an extreme one, isn't it? Your best friend that you haven't been able to catch up with. It's my best one. But I mean, there have been other coincidences. I remember when I was in my 20s and I was doing one of my first um, travels overseas on my own and I went Greek island hopping. So I think I went through Athens and then I got the hydrofoil and, and three islands. And it was incredible. I mean, I met somebody that I knew at the airport. So I was chatting to her on the plane. And then each island that I went to, I met somebody that I knew. And I mean, it could be that, you know, the whole of London was kind of passing through the same Greek islands. There might have been an element of that. But it, it felt to me on a deeper level that kind of every time that I felt a bit at a loss or a bit lonely, it was almost like a sort of chess piece of a person was placed in front of me. It was quite extraordinary. I absolutely love that about travelling. I really do. And you mentioned going for a meal with your uh, with your friend in Australia. And I know you've had some favourite meals from around the world as well. Tell us about a few of those before I ask you my last question. Well, I, I live to eat and I particularly live to eat while travelling. So even pre-Instagram, I was taking a lot of food photos. <laughs> they always turn out badly, though, don't they? I think <laughs> yours might be yours might turn out well. Mine turn oh, out badly. I think you're right, particularly of one's own food. But um, in Australia, I think one of the, one of my absolute go to places is it's in Tasmania and it's in Launceston. So it's the other end of the island to Hobart. And it's a restaurant called Hallam's Waterfront. And they just do the most amazing fish and seafood there. It, it, it's so fresh tasting. Um, and um, I'm a bit obsessed with this Australian cookery show, My Kitchen Rules, MKR. And they're always going on about this fish, Blue Eye Traveller, which uh, you just really can't get in the UK. It turns out it's a version of cod, but it's kind of better. And they do Blue Eye Traveller at, at Hallam's Restaurant, along with oysters and ceviche and pasta with prawns and it's all uniformly delicious so you know if we go there we have to have at least one or maybe two meals there and actually you know in, in thinking about best meals that I've had um, all over the world you know we were talking about Bangkok earlier I, I think a real standout place for me in Bangkok was a restaurant called the never-ending summer and that's by the river it's in an old converted warehouse so again it had the kind of fairy lights that you were talking about and um, I, I have quite a thing for Tom Yum soup. Mm. And, and I tasted a lot of that when I was out there. And this was one of those places where it arrived with, uh, you know, a, a little fire under it to keep it hot in the sense of warm. But also, my goodness, that was a hot and spicy soup um, that, that I was eating there. Uh, and that particular restaurant also does an amazing salad that it's known for, which is sort of cubes of watermelon and then this dry dressing of sugar and dried fish, which sounds vaguely disgusting, but <laughs> it's just absolutely amazing because you've got your sugar hit, you've got your salty hit, um, absolutely delicious. There's one of my favourite Thai dishes, and I don't know what it's called, and I can never find it anywhere but Thailand, but they have these sort of, they're almost like spinach leaves, but a bit thicker, and it's served on a round plate, almost like a, a tali, you know, an Indian tali where you get the, um, you know, lots of little dishes. And you, you get this flat bit of spinach, not spinach, but this flat leaf. And you put on tiny little um, prawns, cubes of pepper, cubes of chopped onion, fresh lime, fresh chilies and some sort of sauce that they have in the middle. And then you roll it up almost like a 
a, a duck wrap a Chinese mm. duck wrap and you eat it and it's just amazing but I can't find it in any other country but Thai food is just the best isn't it just the absolute best mind you after three months in Thailand and you know curry Thai food for like breakfast lunch and dinner I was like desperate to go somewhere for like a burger you know or something I don't even eat meat but just give me something you know give me a bowl of pasta or a piece of toast some beans on toast or something like that uh, having spent Christmas in Bangkok and having all of that amazing Thai food we then spent New Year in Krabi and there was actually a really good Italian pasta restaurant in Krabi and I felt in many ways like I was letting the side down by going to it but sometimes you do need just that pause in different tastes i think to appreciate it all the more you definitely do you absolutely do uh, thank you so much for coming oh no my god oh god i haven't done i haven't done see this is why i'm not i'm so more used to do my face-to-face interviews i'm going to ask you my last question now of course <laughs> my last question is always about music because i believe that music and travel often go very much hand in hand and if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a special or memorable place and time of travel what is that song and describe the scene for me? Can I be really cheeky and have two? Yes, absolutely. You're not the, the first. Connect. Well, as, as we mentioned before, as the UK went into lockdown, I, I was in Perth in Western Australia and I really wasn't sure what we were going to do, if we were going to come home, if we should come home, where home was. And there, there are two songs that were really in my mind, that ly- the lyrics were sort of playing out in my mind. And one was... Crowded House, Better Be Home Soon. And I love Crowded House. And I wasn't entirely sure what that was telling me. I wasn't entirely sure if that was saying, Australia is your home. You're married to an Australian. You have friends and family here. Stay. Or actually, you need to go back to London. And then the other song is this Australian group that um, my husband's family clued me into called Cold Chisel. And they have this classic song called K-San, which is um, about a Vietnam vet returning and there's this line in that song the last plane out of sydney's almost gone and again that line kept coming the last plane out of sydney's almost gone the last plane out of sydney i mean we weren't taking the plane out of sydney we were taking the plane out of perth but um as it turned out we did get the last plane out of perth certainly the last direct flight so yeah, they're, they're very uh, much written on my heart, those two songs. I can't believe you mentioned Crowded House, Better Be Home Soon. It's one of my favourite songs ever. And to me, you know, sometimes when you're doing this, having these conversations, you know, I, I keep, you know, some of my own stuff back as it's about you. But, but to me, Australia is all about Crowded House. And even though they're from New Zealand originally, but they spend a lot of time in Australia. And Better Be Home Soon is just, I was just talking about it with Alex, who edits this podcast uh, the other day, and how the lyrics mean so much. And it's just, oh, it's just, it's just the best song ever. And just their voices, and to me, and their jangly guitars and Crowded House is just really reminds, just it, it, it epitomizes Australia for me. And actually, you know, now you mentioned that, I remember that um, I saw Crowded House at the Flower in Finsbury Park in the early 90s. And I saw it with these very dear Australian friends of mine, Carla and Andrew, who were living in London at that time, um, but then relocated back to Sydney. And it was it was really the strength of my friendship with them. That was the reason I first went to Australia uh, those first couple of times. So... 
actually, yeah, Crowded House really sort of signals the way for me. Thank you so much, Justin. I'm now back in the UK. I've moved from London to Brighton and I'm busy contacting all sorts of fabulous people for your listening pleasure. Thanks again for being such wonderful listeners. See you soon.